Welcome to Night Vale has been described as the fiction podcast that launched a million fiction podcasts. It's set in a desert town, Night Vale, where every conspiracy theory is true. Jeffrey Craner, one of the show's creators, says making a comedy show about conspiracy and horror got trickier as time went on. We have to be a little bit more careful as to like the type of disinformation we make into comedy, but, you know, the, the stuff that we play with, you know. Sometimes horror is so real that writing horror fiction can be a little bit tough in that way. This week on Interstates, welcome to Night Vale's Jeffrey Craner. We also have a panic in France and more guilty pleasures. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. As you know, Interstates is both a radio show and a podcast. And today's episode is about radio shows and podcasts. Two of them. One is probably the best-known fiction podcast around. The other is apparently popular, too, but my colleague, Violet Barron, does feel guilty about listening to it. In between those conversations about stories, we have a story about a rumor. It takes place in France. It might involve a terrorist attack, but don't worry, no one gets hurt. Okay, our main story today is about Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale is a long-running fiction podcast in the style of community updates for the small desert town of Night Vale. The podcast is coming to Bloomington on April 24th to perform their live show, The Haunting of Night Vale. Well, the story was supposed to run today. It was going to be produced by our own Avraham Forrest, but we haven't seen her in days. We're actually starting to worry. So if anyone has any information as to the whereabouts of... Turn off the lights. What? Just just turn off the lights. Oh, oh okay. Jeez. I, I, I found them, Alex. Found who? Welcome to Night Vale. I, I found the creators. They, they do exist. Uh, yeah, you talked to Jeffrey Craner. No, no, um, no. Not whoever that was pretending to be him over the phone. I, I don't know why, but they let me see the real one. The real one? Yeah. Avi, no offense, but this is... Look, all... look, I... I contacted Welcome to Night Vale, and for whatever reason, they gave us an interview. I was expecting a Zoom link or something, but instead I got an address. Like a physical address? Yeah, yeah. It's an antique place nearby. It was pretty close to my apartment, actually. Anyway, it had a normal-looking wooden porch and a big sign saying antiques, exactly what a fake antique shop wants you to think they're selling. Uh... Fair point, I guess. When I walked in, there was this guy uh, behind the counter, super tall in a dark suit, a big rose pinned to his chest. He looked really intimidating, like he was a Stanislav or a Michael. Ooh. Yeah. Anyway, he he stared at me. I, I, I didn't say anything. I was just about to rethink the whole thing when he pointed to the stairs. Wait, wait, wait. What color was the rose? Purple, Alex, it's it's not the point. The basement was big, and it had this buzzing noise in it. it. It took me a minute before I realized what it was. It was radio static. What? Yeah, I know. It's, it's weird. But that's not the strangest part. I've always wondered how the creators of Welcome to Night Vale make such great audio work. It's simple. Jeffrey Craner is a radio. He is a radio. Or he's in it. Or 
something here. Avi, is this a cassette? Yeah, it's it's the only thing they can't trace. Hmm. Okay, listeners, I'm plugging the tape into our system here. All right, seems like we're set up. Avraham Forrest sits down with Welcome to Night Vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner, who is apparently inside a radio in the lower level of a strange antique shop. Describe it in a sentence. Uh, yeah, let's see if I let's see if I still have this in my head. Yeah. Um, Welcome to Night Vale is a fiction podcast done in the style of community radio broadcasts from a strange southwest desert town where every conspiracy theory is true and things such as ghosts and aliens and secret police are just sort of commonplace parts of everyday life. And people just live with it and move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and something that is getting eerily more and more accurate to real life as we go on. The history of humanity shows that we go through these cycles of, of conspiracy, these cycles of, hate to use the F word, but fascism, you know, these, these you know, the of, of circling back to our distrust of something bigger than all of it. And sometimes that just manifests like, oh, the government doesn't want us to know about UFOs. A lot of that early, those couple, those early years, we're just kind of playing with the silliness and the funness of those like higher concept uh, conspiracy theories. But as it's gone on, we have to be a little bit more careful as to like the type of disinformation we make into comedy, but you know, the, the stuff that we play with, you know, Sometimes horror is so real that uh, that writing horror fiction can be a little bit tough in that way. Welcome to Night Vale isn't necessarily horror. It, it's it, it deals with scary topics, but you wouldn't really describe it as horror. Yeah, it, it's it kind of like skirt. I mean, you could go into the whole lit crit discussion of whether or not genre is even real uh, and especially nowadays too but it it it, it, it skirts a lot of genres uh, yeah I think at, at its heart that there is a comedy to Night Vale and whether that comedy is dry humor or straight satire but we definitely use horror tropes all the time you know I think horror and comedy really do go hand in hand they're, they're so similar and welcome to Night Vale. I think the the best word I can think of it. It's just weird, I, and I love it for that. I, I think I would describe myself as weird, and I kind of resonate. I think Welcome to Night Vale was formulative for just my personality, and it's so strange because like I grew up with Welcome to Night Vale. Um, but what's it like making weird art? What is it like making weird art? Um, I mean, it's fun more than anything, really, honestly. You know, I grew up watching. I, I loved, I loved weird stuff. I, I just, I, I thought it was more fun to watch things that were unexpected and strange that subverted expectations. 
you know, whether that's Twin Peaks or Erie, Indiana, or the adventures of Pete and Pete, like all this stuff from the nineties was, was stuff I grew up on. And, uh, and even like modern day things, uh, you know, I, I still love catching, I still love a gravity falls or whatever, um, you know, more contemporary, uh, absurdities. And when I got into college and started studying theater, uh, loved people like Eugenie Inesco and Samuel Beckett, you know, people that were doing stuff that wasn't just like kitchen sink realism that wasn't plain and, and expected. And so making Night Vale, making weird art is fun uh, because it's exactly what I wanted to do. It's doing the thing that I loved growing up. And uh, so it's fun to figure out how to make something that is unexpected at times. You know, a lot of Night Vale has a pretty traditional story structure, uh, but at the same time, it's fun to kind of play around with the humor and the horror by, you know, not giving people exactly what they think is going to happen. I weirdly get it. And granted, this is like me. This is like a pe- comparing a pebble to a mountain, like my my <laughs> my like little scribblings like to your show. But like, I don't know. I, I felt that, too. But I love horror. And I I write a lot of it. And I guess my biggest fear is that, like, what I'm making is, like, is only good to me, that I'm somehow missing an audience, or that what I'm making just isn't good. Yeah, I I always fear that. It doesn't even matter, like, yeah, I think that's an anxiety I have, too, even with Night Vale. You know, you, you know the, the size of your audience is not evidence of the quality of your work. Uh, it almost never is. They They can be linked like correlation is not causation. And uh, so sometimes, yeah, you, you, you never get away from imposter syndrome. It was just seeing a thing about Stephen King in the eighties, kicked his longstanding Coke habit, got out of that and, and wrote the novel needful things, which was po- generally like tepidly positively reviewed by people like three and a half stars sort of thing. And it always bothered him because he, he thought he wrote this really good novel and he was very proud of himself because of everything he overcame to get to the place where he could write this book and that he felt like people didn't get the kind of satirical farcical comedy he was doing in it and that it was a little bit more standard literary than straight horror. So sometimes I think with Night Vale, I'm like, maybe it's just popular because it gained uh, an internet popularity in 2013. Everyone has convinced themselves they like it. And they're too afraid to understand that they actually hate it, that it's really pretty terrible. You know what I mean? Like, that's the anxiety, which I think is exact. I don't think it's comparing a mountain to a pebble between you and me. I think it's it's a universal feeling with all writers. And it doesn't matter if you have an audience of 100 people or an audience of 100,000. It's kind of always the same thing, which is the dirty secret of making art, I think. I love Welcome to Night Vale. It is arguably one of my most favorite pieces of media ever. You could, like, inscribe it on my coffin as you lower me <laughs> into the ground. That's a little bit of hyperbole. But I'm not you. I didn't write it. I didn't make it. Um, and you clearly love it. But I- I'm just curious, like, what part of Welcome to Night Vale do you not like? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the same thing... It's it, it's probably a similar answer to the same thing if you're like, what do you not like about your friends? You know, what do you not like about your family? What do you not like about something you really love? And there's always going to be something. 
you know, you're always looking for like systematic problems that you may have, you know, there's a repeated pattern that may happen in a relationship that may make the relationship toxic. And I'm always looking for that just to make sure that, you know, you're cutting stuff like that off of the past, whether it's with a partner or a friend or a colleague. With Nightbill, it, it, you know, we don't really have those sorts of things. We're all pretty good in the, in between me and Joseph, Meg, Cecil, Disparition, uh, Symphony, like communicating with each other what it is that we need. You know, Joseph and I sort of joke that we're work married. Uh, and I think that's a real common thing for people, especially if you start a business or a show together with somebody else. You know, in a lot of ways, that person is also a form of a spouse to you that, that you have. You're a co-parent of this thing together. And uh, parents don't always, friends don't always, spouses don't always, like, agree on, you know, what you want for dinner, let alone how to shape the next six months of the story arc. To use the analogy that's a bit on the nose, it's like, welcome to Night though, is the glow cloud. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I like the the idea that you view it as more of like a a family. Do do you ever see Welcome to Night Vale as sort of this entity beyond you? Oh, 100%. Right. You know, we made a thing and and we'd made a lot of things before Night Vale together, Joseph and I and and me and other people. And, and, uh, you know, once once an audience is involved, it starts to change the art just a little bit. Um, and then with something on the scope of Welcome to Night Vale that had the size of audience that it had, which I had before it had no experience with that size of audience. Um, yeah, it does change because uh, it, it becomes something that a lot of people own. Um, you know, Joseph and I still own most of it, but it it, it, it doesn't. There's a balance between you don't want to like pander to people to read fan mail and say, OK, well, they want this, so let's give them this. Um, but it also doesn't work to deny the conversations that happen around Welcome to Night Vale. You know, you you learn a lot about people's responses to things. You know, you get you get educated if you're a public artist. You get educated on things uh, from you know use of language, right? To be like this phrase is ableist that you used or comes from these roots, and so you can kind of go back and look at it. And be like, yeah, let's let's just get away from saying that. You know, one of the easiest examples was, I think early on, I just kept using the phrase ladies and gentlemen. And it's sort of a binary exclusionary phrase. And honestly, it doesn't hurt anyone to not use the phrase. <laughs> so you you learn from people in that way. And in that way, people are contributing to what uh, the whole thing is, you know, to what Welcome to Night Vale is. Yeah, yeah. And earlier you described your relationship sort of with, uh, with I assume, Joseph Fink um, mm-hmm. uh, and also the other members of Welcome to Night Vale. But how would you describe your relationship with the entity that is Welcome to Night Vale? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say exactly what that is. I mean, my relationship to it is a, is a responsibility. I mean, I think a, a, the best example might be a parental relationship. You know, I have to like or like having a pet, you know, uh, because I have to, I have to feed it and take care of it. It won't do it on its own. You know, if, if we're not writing it and caring for it and talking about it uh, internally about how to keep it good, you know, holding to our principles of what is good writing, um, then it will, it will not flourish. You know, if, if we stopped making Night Vale, which we don't have any intention to, but if Joseph and I said, let's, Let's make the next episode the last episode. I mean, Night Vale will still have a life without us. It, we got it enough off the ground to where I don't think it would be forgotten for a little bit anyway. 
it still can't. As long as it's alive, it, it has to, you know, it needs our care and attention. And I guess speaking as that parent to Welcome to Night Vale, what is your greatest fear for Welcome to Night Vale? I don't have one necessarily. I mean, I have anxieties just in general in my life, you know. Um, I don't really have a fear for it because I, you know, I I think that we're in a rhythm with it, you know, as to where it is. And I, I think any change it goes through tends to be fairly gradual um, at this point in time. But, you know, obviously, like, you know, just common anxieties that, that uh, you know, that the world will shift in a certain way that makes it, you know, not as meaningful to people or maybe, you know, something along those lines. I always fear as an artist, I have huge anxieties about doing anything that's harmful to people. So, you know, you, you know, but, but I feel like we try very, very hard at doing that. And you can't avoid in any kind of art making something that's not going to be upsetting at some point in time. And it's a matter of just listening and caring. So I don't have any huge fears around it at all. Uh, mostly just common artistic anxieties. The success is, is such a, a kind of gooey term, to be honest, because like I want it. We all want it. But there's always this this sort of thorny issue of like, do you ever feel like you're you're lost in success? Do you ever feel like you're just like the Welcome to Night Vale person? Or do you enjoy that? Do you ever feel sort of lost in Welcome to Night Vale? I don't feel lost in it. I mean, there's a thing that, that, you know, you have to sort of respect what comes along, you know. And so this is where I found my success. It was not a way in which I thought I was going to be successful was doing podcasts, um, obviously, because they didn't exist when I was growing up. So that's part of it. But no, I mean, you definitely feel a little bit pigeonholed or typecast as people are doing things. You know, uh, you sort of start understanding how people categorize everyone in the world. We'd worked on in development for several years a Night Vale TV show, but one of the first incarnations of it, we had another writer uh, who wrote the whole pilot draft, and we took it and took it out to networks, pitched it, and it got bought in the room by FX. They were like, "Absolutely great!" And we were like, "Holy shit, we're going to have a TV show! This is amazing!" And then that writer left to take another job because at the point we weren't at that point we weren't being paid for this show yet. And so obviously she should take this other job because it pays and it's immediate. And the moment she left, FX dropped the show. And we realized what had happened was they didn't know what Night Vale was. Didn't really care. What they knew was this other writer was kind of up and coming star like that they had slotted in their head of like, we want this lady working with us. And this project seems fine. Um, let's make it happen. And then when she left for the other thing, you realize that pe- everyone gets slotted in good and bad ways. And, um, and so you sort of accept that you kind of learn to roll with it. You learn to, to know where your place is in the world and you try and move within that and you try and push against some of those boundaries. And so with a show like unlicensed, we're trying to push against a little bit that notion that we only write weird fiction. We only write weird horror comedies. And, uh, we, want to show that we can write lots of things. And I think that's really hard on society in general to allow people to kind of break out, uh, you know, to allow others to break out of the mold we've set for them. What do you want to be known for uh, at the end of your career? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's a fantastic question because I, I, I don't really ever, I don't think I ever really think about it. I mean, I, I think I, oh man. I mean, I think I, 
I think inherently, like, I, I want to be, I want, I, I guess if I'm going to be known for something, uh, is if, if people are going to remember my name in a, in a, in a writing sort of way, I just want it, I just want people to associate me with like changing something, you know, and I, you know, I just, I want to be like the people I admired growing up. So if I could ever achieve that level of notoriety beyond my days, um, it would be really cool to be thought of as somebody who changed something about the way we do things, the way Samuel Beckett changed something. That's a really high mark to set for myself. So I don't think of it as a goal so much as if we're talking pie in the sky, it would be fun to have a paragraph in a textbook about writing to be like, here's Jeffrey Craner changed how we thought about this thing. I think that would be fun. Um, that's probably my, my pie in the sky sort of dream, if anything. And just to speculate, what do you think that thing would be? <laughs> um, <laughs> he never understood how to use the M dash versus the N dash versus the hyphen versus the ellipsis. And, uh, and thankfully, nobody uses any of those things anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's not that this is that unique. I don't really have a, an answer to like what I'm doing that is special. I try to keep things fresh and unique by just experimenting with how I structure a story, how I tell a thing all the time, but it's exp experimenting within my own world of what I've done. So a lot of the experiments I do for myself aren't novel. You know, they're, they're not something that nobody has ever tried in history before. I think it would be really neat to think about structure in general of how we structure a plot, um, how we base things around a character. You know, is there some sacred golden rule that we shouldn't violate that, that we did violate and that suddenly we have a new perspective on how to do this sort of thing. I'm very uh, appreciative of, of your questioning today, the way you handled this. Awesome work. Don't mean to be all dad about it. Like, good work, kiddo. That's not what I mean. I mean, I do a lot <laughs> of these interviews and this was great, so I really appreciate it. I, I would die to get dadded by Jeffrey Craner. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I want to be known as Fiction Podcasting's dad. That's it. Put that on my tombstone. Okay, that seems to be it. Didn't seem so bad, actually. Avi, how are you? Alex. Uh, Avi, what? <clears throat> Sorry, that was a little scary. Turns out I wasn't being chased at all. They wanted to hire me. You're looking at their new 2023 summer intern. Wow. Uh, and all this? Oh yeah, so, small thing. I have to shed my mortal form in order to ascend to the realm of pure energy. Oh, hey, here's my supervisor now.
Avi's going to take some time off for academic work. We wish her a wonderful summer on another plane of existence. In the meantime, Welcome to Night Vale will be in Bloomington on April 24th for their live show, The Haunting of Night Vale. Check the Buskirk Chumley Theater website for ticket information. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, Mallory Kinoy and her friends appreciate their parents' advice about what to do if there's a terrorist attack. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. When she was in high school, Mallory got to go to France with a group of friends. But it was less than a year after those terrorist attacks in Paris in late 2015. 130 people died. So Mallory and her friend's parents were concerned, and they had advice for them. Mallory and her friends did use the advice, although it's not clear if they needed to. Here's Mallory. In high school, I went to France with my school's French club. I recently caught up with some of my friends from the trip. My name is Alyssa. Uh, I'm Erin. Uh, my name's Alec. I'm Rachel. Although we saw the Eiffel Tower and ate far too much cheese, this is not that story. Were any of you worried about terrorist attacks before we went? Because I, it was at like a time where this was happening. Yeah, I just remember my mom was like freaking out about it because um, that was when there was like terrorism going on mainly in Europe, which was exactly where we were going. So she was just like gave me a rundown like a few days before and then every day leading up and like what to look out for and to like always spot an exit point like wherever I was in case I needed to get out of somewhere quickly, things like that. I know my parents told me that I couldn't go unless things calmed down in Europe. They were pretty hesitant to even let me go in the first place and honestly I'm so thankful I had this talk with my mom the night before um, but because I thought it was stupid at the time where she was trying to tell me like, oh like if something happens, if there's a terrorist attack then you need to run. And that came in very handy later, so I'm very glad she told me that. It came in handy the night of July 10th, 2016, a night that made these terrorist attacks seem all too real for us. We were in Tour, France, which is best described as a small college town. My group was watching the final football match of the Euro Cup final. France versus Portugal in the town square. It was a large concrete area surrounded by bars, shops, and plenty of TVs to see the game. The five of us, including our friend Jeff and my mom, packed into the square with over a thousand others to catch the action. I just remember the closet Portugal fan up on the balcony rallying everyone up, and then they scored in like the upcoming last minutes. And I remember before we were we kind of we kind of joked about it. We were like, "Oh, like what would we do if uh, something happened right now?" And I remember I think it was Mao. You said that you would run into that alley that we ended up going down. Yeah. So that was my initial instinct when it happened. 
There was only a few minutes left, and Portugal was destined to take down France for the win. And then... I remember like hearing a bunch of commotion and looking to my left and just seeing a wave of people coming at me. And the next thing I knew, like same with Aaron, I don't remember getting up, I don't remember moving, but I was just thrown up against a wall. Like beers were thrown on me, like I was soaking wet in alcohol. And I just remember like Rachel turned to someone and was trying to like ask in French if they knew what was going on. But the girl could like tell we were American. And so all she said was machine gun, machine gun. And I was like, what? Machine gun? And I like freaked out at that point. Yeah, because we never saw anything. That was it. We we, like saw this mass wave of people running at us, but then like nobody else came after them. All we knew at that moment was that a stampede of people ran at us in a panic, and there might be a gun involved. Our group was then divided into two. Alyssa, Rachel, and Aaron were thrown against a wall, while Alec, Jeff, my mom, and myself took off running down a nearby alley. Uh, but, like, when I ran down that alley, like, there was people, like, basically scaling the buildings, like, trying not to get trampled. And that was when I turned around and I saw Jeff because he had a red shirt on. And then I saw you and then your mom. And then we kind of just kept going that way towards the bridge. You know what I'm talking about? And yeah, we kind of just kept running from there. Aaron and Alyssa and I like linked arms with that girl and ran. When we ran, yeah, when we ran down the alley, she was like arm in arm with us. And she was just as terrified as we were. So clearly it wasn't just the fact that we were visiting France like the people that were actually French were scared she was sobbing and she was on the phone with some random people and like had actually linked arms with me and Rachel and Alyssa so that shows that they were just as scared as we were and then I remember us like trying to decide if we wanted to run down the main street or the alley like which was safer to be with like a bunch of people running down the main street or to like take a back alley Well, yeah, because at that point, we assumed it was probably, like, some kind of terrorist attack because they'd been happening in Europe. So we were like, it's definitely way safer to go down the back alleys right now than it would be to go on the main roads. We had ran so far that we found a cop car, and it was me, Aaron, and Rachel, and we ran up to the cop car, and we were like, do you know what's going on? Like, what's happening? And the cops looked at us, like, so confused. They were like, you're fine. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and somehow we just, like, stumbled upon the hotel. Like, we would see some buildings, and we'd be like, oh, I remember that building. But, like, for me, at least, like, I had no idea where I was going, and somehow we just ended up at the hotel, and I was like, oh, okay, nice. <laughs> The other half of us had a very different journey back to the hotel. By this time, we ran several miles outside of the town square. Our phones wouldn't work, and almost every business is closed on Sundays in France, so no one was around to help us. We were lost and afraid. However, to our surprise, our saving grace came in the form of a Domino's pizza. And there was like just some guy who was closing up, and then he let us use the phone, and that's how we called you guys at the hotel, I think. In my best French, I tried to explain our situation to the Domino's worker. He reluctantly let me use his phone to call our hotel. Yeah, and the funny part was right when we found the hotel and we walked in the lobby, one of the like 
people working for the hotel turned to me and was like, you have a phone call. And I was like, what? I have a phone call. What are you talking about? So I take the phone and I answer it and it's Mallory and your your mom. And I was like, what the heck? Like, what are the odds of that timing? But then, yeah, I think you guys were just asking, like, if we were okay and if we made it back and everything. But I just thought that was so funny. Well, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. (laughs) The hotel happened to connect me to Alyssa. At the time, she also told us that the police officer they spoke to believed nearby firecrackers might have frightened the crowd. It was safe for us to go back. To this day, we don't really know what happened. Only two other people in our whole travel group even saw the incident. Kendra's dad was also a chaperone on the trip, so he was with a little bit of a different group. And from their perspective, it sounds like they were about to walk back into the square. And of course, you had like walk across and through all these people to get back to the spot we were at. And I supposedly they were like pressed against the wall and a ton of cops with like barrel guns and like massive guns were coming through. Our only clue into what happened came in the form of an article Aaron found while we were still in France. I, like, looked for that stupid article. I found it when we were in France. I remember finding this article that said someone got stabbed. Like, people got stabbed in tour in, while watching the France versus Portugal game. And I haven't been able to find it since. And it drives me insane. Like, Rachel and I have searched the depths of the internet for this article. And I, I literally can't find it. Although the night was undoubtedly terrifying for us all, over the past few years, it's affected us in different ways. Yeah, I remember there was this incident where Rachel and I were at the football game where we all stormed the field because we won. And up until that point, I hadn't really had any issues with crowds. I guess I hadn't really been in a big crowd. But whenever I was in a room, like I feel like I would look for exits a little bit more. But I remember storming the field with Rachel and having there be loud sounds and both of us kind of panicked, like actually panicked and ended up leaving because it was just super uncomfortable. I'm like Aaron, like wherever I'm in a large crowd, I always find an exit. Like I was at a concert and I was looking out for that and Disney, same thing. Like I thought it might have affected me more because that's definitely like the number one like uh, scariest thing that's happened to me personally, honestly. So like that was a fight or flight situation, like at its best. Cause I mean, I expected the worst when I saw people running at me, but other than that, it didn't really affect me that much. I don't, I don't know why, but yeah. I think like just because nothing like super terrible actually did happen and like we're still kind of unclear on what actually happened like I haven't had too hard of a time since then like being in crowds and stuff but I feel like if if we knew what had happened or if it was like worse than it actually was then yeah I definitely would but I feel like just because it's kind of unclear like I just kind of like push it to the back of my memory. (laughs) Personally, I had to begin therapy for the PTSD it caused me. Much like Rachel and Aaron, being in large crowds began to scare me, and I still have nightmares from time to time. 
Nonetheless, this experience bonded us forever. Every July 10th, we try to get together for the anniversary of what we've deemed the running of the bulls. It is a chance for us to be thankful that we're all still together and, well, still alive. Mallory Kinoy. Mallory is a documentary producer in Chicago. Okay, it's time for another break. When we come back, my colleague Violet Barron talks about the podcast that helps her learn about relationships and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Or at least the rich. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers. So we started this guilty pleasure segment last week, and wow, there's a lot to talk about. I sat down with our local host of All Things Considered, Violet Barron. You might also know her as a producer of arts, culture, and food stories here at WFIU. Okay, so uh, you, Violet, have a guilty pleasure. And one thing that I think has been coming up in the conversations about this segment so far, like around the station, is whether we actually feel guilty about our pleasures. I think you, it sounds like you feel, actually do feel a little bit guilty about this one. I do, in like an institutional way, sort of. What do you mean that you feel guilty in an institutional sort of way? I think a lot about structures and equity in my life, even in, in my work and in my pleasure. So, you know, I like the people who make the content that I enjoy to be thoughtful. So that's where the guilt comes in in this situation. Okay, I think, I think that's a good lead-in. So what is this thing? My Guilty Pleasure is a quite popular podcast called We Met at Acme. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I am very excited for today's episode with Marin. Marin is this episode today is a doozy. Talia was an incredible guest. I have been a fan of Shannon's for a while. It's a show by actually the child of family friends of my husband's. So my husband and she grew up together. They went on vacations with as families, as kids. And she grew up and made this podcast, which is a dating podcast. And it it's very woman-focused, although not exclusive. And it's about how do you find a person that is right for you? And how do you set up a healthy relationship? If you end up, if you wait and you truly get to know yourself and you know what works and doesn't work, and you're not just like with whoever's next to you, in front of you, whatever it is, and you explore what else is out it's there. It's kind of a dating podcast for the 1%. Or, you know, the, like, and what 3%. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of young women in New York City or other major cities who are themselves in corporate jobs, largely business and finance, or who are dating finance bros, you know, like men, often young men, who are also in finance, you know, and so that... That factors into what kind of things they care about, what kind of things are deal breakers for them. How much of it is like an a sort of ironic or anthropological enjoyment? Like I am not part of this. How much of it is I see myself in this and I do identify with this? Or there's also maybe just an escapist thing, like of just sort of floating in the not having to be critical. 
Yeah, I would say it's a mix of anthropology and floating. Like, I like cooking dinner and just hearing about the beauty treatments she's been doing, you know, because a little bit of that resonates with me as somebody who's also in her early 30s, you know, and dealing with, like, this confusing world of skincare <laughs> and the first signs of aging, you know. But it's also fun that it it doesn't feel like it has consequences for my life. It's something that I can look at and turn off. Can you actually just describe the format a little bit more? Sure. So there's like a host. Yeah, so it's one woman is the host and she's like she has a production team, I believe, and it's part of a collective called Dear Media, which I think is a women-centered group of podcasts. And um she interviews people, you know, I think she has an agent or whatever who finds these, helps her find these people. Sometimes they're friends of hers. Sometimes they're sort of like other influencers, you know, or like minor to medium celebrities. And she talks to them about, sometimes they're therapists also. She talks to them about their relationships, about struggles they've had. It's very millennial. It's very 2020s. It has an Instagram presence in parallel to the show. And something that's big about the show is polls. So Instagram stories, it just listeners submit polls about like their dating experiences and then the the community of followers weighs in. So it can be anything from I've been on three dates with a guy, he doesn't respond to my text for two days. Is that a deal breaker? There's a lot of red flag, deal breaker, or NBD, so no big deal. And so you get like 45% say it's no big deal, you know, so that that's fun to follow. The majority of respondents said that it was a deal breaker if somebody chews extremely loudly while they eat and had no interest in, <laughs> in changing this. <laughs> It has a very superficial quality to it, which sort of goes into the guilt for me. A lot of the show is sort of like aesthetically focused, you know, like the listeners and the hosts are people who care very much about how they present themselves to the world. It's fascinating to me as somebody who cares somewhat, but not to the extent that's happening here. What's also interesting to me is the show is very rules driven. It has its own set of rules for what's appropriate when you're dating. And since it's sort of women centered, it's about like letting the man feel as if he's leading, which feels old to me. So like some of the examples of the rules are the girl is not really supposed to text first. She can sort of prompt him to text. He's supposed to plan the dates. He's supposed to pay. If he does not pay, it's a deal breaker. And actually, several times in the show or the Instagram, they've gone over how this plays out. The girl is supposed to do a reach. <laughs> and the guy is supposed to say, absolutely not. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's so interesting and fun to me. It feels like another universe.
You said it feels like very millennial in 2020s, but also it sounds like 1950s. Yeah. A lot of this is based around the idea that guys like to lead and a guy will not know if he truly likes you unless he feels he's making the decisions. And another thing that happens frequently in the Instagram is she'll repost DMs, direct messages of women who are saying, thank you so much. I followed your rules and he just asked me to be his girlfriend. And that's like the first time this has happened. He's like a, oh, and they use the word quality. He's a very high quality man. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess like it feels a little transactional. It feels a little bit like buying and selling, which is fascinating to me when applied to relationships. Right. And which is kind of what that world is about, too, because you said it's a lot of people in finance. Yeah, if you've seen the show Fleischman is in Trouble, which is about about everything. It's about life and marriage and how young love (laughs) can become old resentment and money. You can't get one of these for less than 10 grand. Wealthy Upper East Side Jewish communities, that is the community that she grew up in. So if you haven't seen the show and you aren't from there. It's the kind of culture where a thousand dollar budget for a wedding guest dress is not surprising. Actually, she talks about the show on the podcast and she identifies with the wife character. The show is about the tension between a husband who's like, cares about family, who is a doctor. Yeah, he's not a camp kid, Rachel. And a wife who... If he doesn't go now, he'll be too freaked out to go later. ...cares about success and stability, but stability for her is very much about continuing to rise in career and what school her children are going to get into. Wait, he wanted to go to that, uh, that ice skating camp in Queens, you remember? Who's he going to meet at an ice skating camp? Uh, I don't know. Not everybody goes to camp for, like, networking opportunities, Rachel. Why does anyone do something more appropriate, like tennis? And, you know, in her defense of the wife on the show, the the host says, you know, money's important and it does matter where your kids go. There it is. Honesty. Finally. What I also appreciate about it, the pleasure for me, other than this voyeuristic look at the business world and how they date, is it's actually quite smart about relationships in some ways. The host went through a sobriety journey and she's very open about that. She's in recovery Her issue was primarily weed, marijuana, but she's completely sober from all substances and she goes to meetings, I believe. And she had to sort of do the difficult work now, I think four years ago for her, of figuring out who she was, what she needed, and what parts of her life were not helping her. And that's real, you know, no matter who you are and like what, how expensive a dress you like to wear, you know, it, it's, it feels very real and honest. And I appreciate that she does that, you know. And like that comes up in the conversations that she has about relationships. It does, because, you know, at the core of the show is how do you figure out if the relationship you're in or the people that you're pursuing are right for you, you know, right in a big lasting way. So you have to... You have to figure out yourself in order to do that. And she encourages that for women, which I appreciate also. 
you know that's another reason it's sort of like a millennial 2020s show is like it's very personal it's still in that style that feels kind of lena dunham to me you know of just like exposing yourself to the world and the host is honest about sex and like how that's factoring into her relationship at a given time do you have any thoughts about what this says about our culture i think that even in more superficially focused communities, people really are seeking meaning and meaningful relationships. It's funny that it's real. Like, just the question, like, there, there's a lot of questions about he's getting asked to your family vacation home for the first time. Or, like, his family's going on a vacation and like all the partners are invited and like you're invited what gifts should you bring you know it's funny because it's real for these people you know it's real producer violet Barron. all right that's it for the show this week you've been listening to interstates from wfiu in bloomington indiana if you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. And hey, if you like the show, you can review and rate us on Apple or Spotify. And maybe even more fun than that, you can just tell a friend. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ayabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Jack Lindner, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to producers Avraham Forrest, Mallory Kinoy, and Violet Barron. All right, time for some found sound. That was a shattered glass tabletop being scooped into a paper bag. There's probably a metaphor in there somewhere. I'll leave it to you to find one. In the meantime, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. soon.